Welcome back to season A of Sashimi. For this episode, I interviewed Shelly Perry, a managing director at Scale Logics Ventures. Shelly has a very broad SaaS experience. She started on the operating side and over her career held positions of CTO, chief product officer, and a CEO at companies of different sizes. She then added another dimension to her experience. Shelly became an operating partner at an investment firm with a primary focus on companies in the scale up stage. In this interview, we discuss scale ups compared the mindset of investors and operators and touched on the European SaaS space. Enjoy. Shelly, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I always love to share my wisdom on other people's podcasts. We were talking about that in the green room. So Yeah, that's awesome to, to have you. And I will thank Andy again for introduction. Maybe you could say a few words about yourself before we start. I am a 25-year software operator in many uh, areas of software, but up through development, accounting, GM, CEO, CPO. And then I went to work at an investment firm as an operating partner as a transition. Today, I'm an investor and I spend most of my time making investments, small investments, and as well helping the companies that I invest in be more successful. And I specifically like to invest in the scale-up stage of growth. So I did some research and I've heard this term scale-up quite a bit. Can you tell us what that is and what are the characteristics of the companies on this stage? The scale-up stage of growth is, and I spent a lot of time studying this because People ask me all the time, and I haven't really perfected the exact answer for it. So I'm going to give you what I've boiled it down to. And if any listeners out there have a better way to describe it, please put them in the comments because I'd love to hear it. All right. So the scale-up stage of growth is that kind of teen years, if you've seen anything on it, like the teen years between uh, adolescence or between growing up. A, a child and being an adult. So it's these middle years of high transition. And we can all look back at our own time and really gawky kind of years. And we can look at our, our children or nieces and nephews or any um, children that we watch grow up. It's a really gawky time. It's great. It's exciting. Have its highs and its lows. And that's really what the scale up stage of growth is when you think about the life cycle of a company. And it's not very long. Uh, if you do the math on it, which I'm not going to go through here, but if you do the math, it's really only maximum about three to five years if you take external investment. And it just, it happens that you either going to get acquired or you're going to IPO. So it's a very short period of time. So people who aren't in the investment ecosystem sometimes confuse startup with scale up or they confuse kind of a smaller enterprise with scale up. But there's some characteristics that are specific to it. And I have further broken it down, not just me, there's others who've broken it down into multiple stages. And I just keep it simple. There's a great framework out there. And I can't remember who has the framework, but there's another framework of recorded things that has like seven. It's fantastic. So you should find that and reference it. But I break it down into three because three is just easier. And that's early stage scale up mid-stage scale-up, and late-stage scale-up. And if you can imagine this graphic of startup and scaled enterprise and these three stages in there, the early stage of scale-up is a little bit closer to startup. The mid-stage is right in the middle. And the late stage is getting to scaled enterprise. And the reason I break it into those three categories is because at each stage of the, those three, they have different characteristics. Different people invest in them. Different people thrive in leadership roles in each of those stages, and very few investors 
back in the day invested in all. I think now with the mega funds that we're seeing, we do see the investors kind of have investments in all three stages. But typically, as an investment firm starts out, they'll start in one of the three. And then as they start to get bigger funds, they'll kind of cover the gamut. But what is the milestone going from startup to scale up? It's quite simply that you've achieved the initial product market fit. You've experimented and in there, there is a repeatable pattern of some cohort with some set of features that is repeatable. Now, often your revenue represents much more than your initial product market fit, but the true milestone of crossing over it is that initial product market fit. And the first stage of scale up is you kind of scaling that initial product market fit. So you had features and now maybe you're hardening, you're maybe hiring sales, the engineering team is kind of, you know, procuring more cloud resources, whatever it is, but you are building a base to scale to that initial product market fit. Now what happens in the middle is that you continue to scale that initial product market fit, but you will run out of TAM if you don't start a second product. And there's another growth phase that goes through with this adding a second product. Uh, I could go into it. I could do a whole session on that, but I'm not going to. As I said, I've been passionate about this and I haven't quite figured out how to narrow it down. But that's what happens in the middle stage is you're starting to almost reach the end of this high velocity sale of that first initial product market fit. And what's coming up is your second product. And that's a little bit harder to sell because it's not as big and not as material. And your expenses start to kind of go quite large because you have to make all of these initial investments that you didn't have to make in the startup phase when you were rolling out a new product because you didn't have customers that you had to allocate to. So it's this really kind of growing phase, even in the middle of scale up. And then what happens in the later stage is that you're getting closer to the structure that is scaled enterprise or big enterprise with lots of business units because you're trying to now optimize. So you're trying to get scale by optimizing development, optimizing modules, optimizing GNA, whatever it is, you're getting into this optimization because you really got I don't want to say out of control because it feels like that when you're in it, I think sometimes, but that's the design is that you're growing and your expenses do start to expand. But in that third stage, you're catching up to that second product and then the third and then the fourth. And by that time, you have enough people to do it more efficiently. So there's three stages. I love the scale up stage of growth because it's fast. It's constantly changing. I follow patterns and it keeps me interested. So I've found that it is my absolute favorite stage of growth of a company. And I've worked in software and SaaS companies in all stages. And it's my absolute favorite because I'm a junkie for change. (laughs) And in terms of the uh, quantitative characteristics, can we break down those stages by revenue type or it really depends on the industry vertical? It depends on the industry vertical, but it also depends on the TAM Mm -hmm. and selling price or the ASP of your product. But generally when I'm saying it to people, and this is general. So when you're giving me all the tips about how to describe scale up shorter, you can also give me tips on this, but It typically is zero to 20 in the first one, but it's really more like three to 20 because you need that kind of three to 5 million Mm -hmm. in revenue usually to kind of really nail that initial product.
product market fit versus kind of it being an accident. So it's somewhere between three and 20. And again, if you've got a product that has a bigger TAM, it's going to be a little bit higher. And then it's kind of 20 to 60-ish, that middle. It's that, and then it it definitely tips kind of in the 60 to 100 because if you kind of think about when companies start to consider an IPO, it's right after 100 million and was around 150. We're seeing that a little bit earlier with this crazy IPO market, but about 150 million recurring revenue ARR is when they start to go public. And so by going public, you are no longer a scale up, you are into the enterprise, <laughs> scaled enterprise because the scale-up is also characterized as being uh, in the private sector. So by tipping to the public, you automatically go to that. Sometimes that later stage scale-up is uh, referred to as, will crossover with something called small cap, if you're interested mm-hmm. in yeah. looking that up, it's kind of small cap. So it's roughly that, and companies really get stuck in that middle stage. And I would say that middle stage is kind of a make or break for going kind of increase growth rates or going to a strategic acquisition route or doing a roll-up. So that middle stage is really formative, a formative phase. And you historically worked with, I believe, early stage and a little bit of middle stage. Is it fair? So I've had the great opportunity to have worked with Insight Partners And Insight Partners is a fantastic firm. I'm sure you see Mm -hmm, their name everywhere. I was able to work with them during a time when they were going through a lot of transition and growth. And Insight actually invests in all of the stages of scale-up. So I have been able to see all of the different stages. And I myself have worked in all of the different stages. And I study patterns. I have an accounting background. I have a engineering background and now an investment background. And the three things that are common to those roles or characteristics are patterns. All three of those roles study patterns. And so the great part for me is that when I was with Insight, I was in uh, the operating group and the way Insight was structured at the time is the operating group supported the investment team and the investment team supported all of these different types of investments in terms of all three stages. And I had to pattern match why something worked over here, but didn't work over here, why this investor wanted something and this didn't. And so I had to kind of find a pattern to work with the different investors and those companies. And so I was able to be in this unique position to really see companies at all different stages with how they're managed at scale. And I think that's a really unique opportunity for someone who studies patterns. And that's why I'm here today to share that with you. What are some patterns that you've noticed, like what, why the companies are not working at every single stage? I like the scale-up stage of growth because it has enough scale, or sometimes I use the word clay. There's enough clay that you can actually make impactful differences, right? But it's small enough that as a person working in in any role, you're also having an impact, right? I've worked in very large enterprises and sometimes it's hard to kind of connect with, you know, what am I doing every day that's actually having an impact? So that's why I like the scale-up stage of growth. You know, what goes wrong? It's not what goes wrong. It's more about just mismanaged expectations and lack of sharing information about expectations. Because we go into these things 
as an investor, as an operator with our own set of rose colored glasses. And we make assumptions, but we don't always share them with the other because we don't want to feel vulnerable. We don't want people to know that we don't know. We don't even know that we're supposed to share it. So I find that when you have the most unrest or companies in the scale-up stage of growth aren't doing well, it's that there's just a mismatch of expectations on both sides. And if you can minimize that through, you know, kind of sharing the other person's perspective and kind of getting on the same page, because the words may mean the same, the words sound the same, but they mean something different. And investors by design are really individual contributors and senior operators are leaders. Those are very different kind of personas and very different experiences. And often um, when you see it's not working, it's because those two groups are talking past each other and they don't know it. Hmm. Because there's almost nothing that is if you have the right investor and you have the right operating leadership team, which is people who really want to you know, do the right thing, most of them really want to do the right thing, is when you can start to communicate in that war room and bring all of your experiences and network to the table, you're going to get through it. But if you don't, and you just kind of don't manage the expectations and kind of don't use each other's strengths, you won't get there. You were operating executive before you transitioned to investment world. What did you learn as an investor that you didn't realize as a business operator? I just realized that what I just talked about is that there's just different words that are used. There's different perspectives. As an operator, I looked at things differently because I'm in the ground every day and I don't even know some of the terms that the investors went to school for. And it's just things they throw around, right? And even <laughs> and even that same word, capital, might mean something different in an operator context than it does in the investor context. And it might mean something different in the context of that conversation. So I just learned that you have to kind of step back and level set and really think about, am I hearing it the way they're saying it or they mean it, right? Not what I want to hear, not how I want to hear it, but am I hearing what they're saying and vice versa? I see it a lot. And I, it was me in the beginning. I remember when I first went in, I think I was a really good operating partner because I could help all the companies. But how I helped the companies was I did what I did as an op, a software executive. I just went and did it, right? But guess what? That doesn't scale. So I had to learn how to you know, scale myself, which some of my counterparts as operating partners had come from consulting. And so they knew how to scale, but couldn't necessarily help as deep. And it was, it's really the combination, I think, what makes a good operating partner, especially in the, a firm that has a model like Insight, is really this mix of having worked in a software company, but also having this consulting experience, because it's the two together that's going to help you help more portfolio companies. But I had to learn that, why was I getting so frustrated? Why are they not listening to me, right? The investment team or during due diligence. And I realized that I just wasn't telling them the problems in ways that mattered to them. And I'll give you an example. You know, you say something like they really need to hire a new head of product. I'll just use that one. Like, and I know what that means saying that I they need a head of products. I know there's all of these things tied to it, but that doesn't mean anything to 
an investor, other than the fact that there's no one with a title yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing, right? So, but what does mean something to them is there is no one who's picking up innovation with the founder stepping out, right? Which is like, what was in my head, but I didn't say it that way. So I, there's many, many, many examples of that. So I had to learn very quickly that it wasn't about me, you know, kind of just brain dumping. I had to strategically figure out what the risks were so I could be a great member of this due diligence team or the investment team, the joined investment team. And I had to learn how to bring only the information that was relevant to those people, not everything I knew. So typically... You probably were involved in the due diligence process before uh, investment taking place. Yes. But were there some examples of situation when you join, not use Insight, but maybe some other investment firm, and they already had some companies, would you be able to contribute as a operating partner and would you be as effective? Absolutely. Look, before I went to Insight, my role prior to that as an, as an operator, as a software executive, because I don't know that people who are software executives that aren't in the kind of investment world refer to themselves as operators. So that's why I always clarify. But as a software executive, I spent a lot of time in high rates of change areas, which means most of my career, I was involved with M&A transactions where we were acquiring something mm -hmm. or divesting of something or selling ourselves. <laughs> and so I was very involved in the process, but it was from a inside of a company. And when I made the choice to go to Insight, which was a difficult choice at the time because I specialized in scale and I was like, what am I going to do? Right. And so what I wanted to really learn when I went there while I was still providing value was the investor side of it, because I knew very much how as a strategic buyer, we were making decisions. I also have a financial background. So I did <laughs> say, so everything I do is in terms of financial terms. So I think that if you are a software person and you don't have a financial background, it's going to be harder to acclimate into an operating role and an investment firm or a venture partner role for the earlier ones. Because in the end, you have to really learn how to convey your contribution in financial terms, because that's like the universal language. And I knew how to do that. I just made assumptions that some investors, because they were investing in software, would correlate the fact that if there's product person that they would do that. Now, I could work with an investor in the Bay Area. This was years ago. And they would know that. I wouldn't have to describe it, right? But you have to make no assumptions. You have to just make sure and test in those conversations very quickly, by the way. It's also why I like it because it's speed and that's addicting, right? So very, very quickly, you've got to learn to level set and you have to not make assumptions because you haven't worked with that company. If you're doing due diligence, it's probably a beginning relationship, right? So you have to figure out very, very fast how to test your assumptions and make sure you're talking about the same things. When you do due diligence as an operating partner, what do you typically start with? Look, I think that every firm uh, does that differently. So I don't really want to address it. But in the mm -hmm. end, I'm just going to address kind of during the due diligence what you're looking for. And, and certainly at each of the stages, you're looking for different things. At seed stage, you're looking for, is it an audacious idea? And do I believe in the management team? Because there's no metrics to look at, right? In the, in the early stage of startup, in those three stages I talked about, what you're looking for is, do they really have product market fit? 
can they be taken out? Do they have a moat? Is the leadership team going to be able to take it to the next level, right? You're looking for those kind of things because you're making an investment based on very limited set of multi-years of patterns. And so you have to do some pattern matching, and then you have to take a lot of soft skills because you're making a bet, right? It's not as risky as seed, but you're making a bet. As you get into the mid-stage of scale-up, it's very much heavily metrics-driven. And so you need to look at the metrics, and then you need to test with all of the soft skills because it is people, but it becomes very heavily metrics-driven, and most of it is around growth. When you get to the third stage, it's all about optimization. So a leadership team that could do really well during the middle stage of like being able to handle chaos and increase expenses may not going to do so well in the third stage when they need to start optimizing because those are two different muscles because you don't necessarily want to, you know, you don't want to shut down growth, but you have to start reining it in a bit. And often those aren't the same individuals or the same makeup. So you're testing the assumptions. You're creating a hypothesis from your experience of people's backgrounds, of everything else to try to test, but you're doing it very fast. And I think that was one of the main differences that I learned going from being on the strategic side of investing and divesting of companies. We took our time because it's a big deal. You don't do a lot of investments in these companies and you take a long time to make sure it's the right thing. Whose PL is it going to hit? You methodically work through it and you champion it through all the levels in the big organization. And an acquisition often takes a year in a big company. In an investment firm like Insight, it's highly competitive. Time is not on your side. You have to learn how to do this very, 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 very quickly because time kills all deals. And you want a very time during the scale-up stage of growth is also critically important because you're, you know, the market's moving, your market fits there, the money's there. So you have to move fast. And I think for me, uh, the speed at which they did it was, you know, I loved it. It's like a chunky, but <laughs> it was probably one of the main differences. You can't get into this massive methodical thing yet. The bigger the check, the more risk you do have to know when you have to put more process into it to protect the assets of the people that, because you're fiduciary responsible for the LP's money. So you do have to do it, but you also have to do it at speed. Uh, you mentioned that in the middle stage, the SaaS metrics are being discussed pretty heavily. I'm curious if investors and the operators look at the SaaS metrics the same way and whether they look at the same SaaS metrics? <laughs> so uh, that's a funny question. So when I said the metrics come more into play in the mid-stage, it's relative to the early stage of scale-up and startup. In startup, you don't really have a lot of metrics to look yeah. at. In the early stage of scale-up, you're just kind of starting to get your legs a little bit and you're, you're really just trying to make sure you're selling the heck out of that product market fit. And so sometimes the metrics, they're there, but they're not center stage. In the mid-stage, they really have to start uh, paying attention to them. By the time you get to a scaled enterprise, by the time you get to later stage and scale up, you have many metrics that you're managing. But most companies didn't start out managing 40 metrics. They started with one. Hey, what's our cash? The single biggest metric that early stage companies look at you know, before scale up is, do we have enough cash? <laughs> right? That's the metric. And then, right, then you start to layer that on. Then you start to look at retention. So by the time you get to a scaled company, you are tracking many metrics because you're also in the optimization. 
when you say do operators and do investors look at the same metrics, I think the biggest issue in the two, the early and mid stage of scale up is this. When you're scaling in that first product or that second product, every startup made different choices. They made different choices to get to that stage. One of them might have went heavy on customer success and one of them went light. One of them went heavy on engineering and one of them went light, right? There's all different choices that they made. During the early stage and mid-stage of scale-up, to get to the later stage of scale-up, you've got to cover all of it. But the order that you do it in is very different. You can't do it all at once. And this company is going to do it in this order and this company is going to do it in this order. And so my long story is to say the metrics mean different things at different stages. And if an investor says you should target this and the operator doesn't have enough experience to say, I hear you, but for us to achieve this growth, because they know what's underneath. Remember, investors don't run software companies Mm -hmm. and operators don't know how to do the investment part of it, right? And all the financial responsibility there. So there's an intersection. And if an investor says you must focus on this, there's a reason they're telling you to do that, but it may not be the best metrics for you at that time. Is it a valid metric? Would it be great if it was high? Yes. But making that high could offset something that they don't know about of a trade-off that you made earlier in the startup phase. And it can break you if you don't understand the correlation. So in the early stage of start scale-up and in the mid-stage of scale-up, it's absolutely critical that the C-suite has a really strong handle on which of the key metrics, only a few, and keep adding them because by the time you get to the late stage, you will have all of them. But it's really important that the narrative is understood and that's being driven by the operating leadership team and shared with the board and the investors so that everyone can kind of understand what that means. I believe you've been involved a little bit with uh, European SaaS companies too. I'm curious, how is that uh, European space uh, different from the US? It's a great question in terms of of the European. I think the best way, this is changing, so I have to come up with something else, by the way, like everything changes. But the way that I described it two years ago with COVID, I just haven't been there. So I've been doing working with them, but remotely. So hopefully we'll be traveling soon and I can update my analogy. But the analogy that I like to use today is it reminds me of the Sassification, right? Where SAS is in Europe reminds me of where SAS was in the US, like, I, know, I can't even calculate it now, but like 10 years ago when companies were moving from on-prem uh, into the SaaS mm-hmm. world and cloud was there. So it, it reminds me of that because a lot of the people with experience, experienced people in Europe that have worked in SaaS companies or for US SaaS companies, they tend to have not been in the center of it. They were in like these regional offices, right? And they're mature companies. So they don't actually know how to scale a SaaS company because that was scaled before they went to Europe. There's a shortage of expertise of SaaS, but it's different like all things because when the US was going through that transformation, the cloud native solutions or cloud itself was also going through that, right? So it went at a slower pace. I think the challenge for the Europeans or any other country that's investing in SaaS is that 
the pace at which you need to teach people how to do it and cross pollinate. It has to increase much faster than it had to 10 years ago, like all things. And that's because everybody else is moving as fast. So if you want to get the investment dollars, then you want those investment dollars to pay off and you want the investors who will write the big checks, but also bring the big network, you have to be able to go fast and speed is important. And when you have an entire team who doesn't really know SaaS and is not networked to people who know it and they don't know how to learn fast, it becomes a great disadvantage. So I think that there's a massive opportunity. And I know, I remember as I was the CEO of Binder, standing in front of the Binder team saying, the experience that you're gaining today as being one of the first SaaS companies is going to make your career. Because I could tell it was exactly like the early stages of SaaS for all of the people who were part of SaaS and the SaaSification years ago. And that is playing two or three years later. You can see where they're going. It's so much fun. Uh, But there's just not a lot of SaaS experience and speed is critical. But it also tells me that there are probably uh, U.S. investment firms who are really looking into the European companies at low valuations. Is it fair or what am I missing? There is a definite increase of investments being made outside of the U.S. And I think you know that there's lots of articles on that. Part of it has to do with that there's just a massive amount of capital and it gets highly competitive. And so you're, you know, you start to expand where you make investments. I think that there's more due diligence that they'll do because they don't necessarily have the operating strength there. And I think you're starting to see that the firms that are making heavy investments in regions outside the U.S. are creating kind of these pods where they're creating that expertise. They're not expecting everyone uh, you know, from the U.S. to fly. And I think COVID helped accelerate that, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like all things, right? So I think it's just also the investment firms that are predominantly U.S.-based like all of us who are enterprise or help a software company scale, when you first start to go to another region, you used to you usually fly your people over there, right? And that doesn't really scale, but you do that in the beginning until you can kind of build a base. And I think the investment firms that are that are US based that are making heavy investments outside the US are growing into that operational, local operational support. And it's just hard because there isn't as much. But more founders of SaaS companies that are successful, well, they're going back in and being the operating partners or the mentors for the next generation. So it's happening fast. But I think today, if you ask me the difference, it would be just that lack of experience and the lack of understanding how important speed is. I know I'm saying that as an American out there for everyone, (laughs) but if you're going to take American investment money, right? That's a culture that goes with that firm. And speed is what we thrive on. (laughs) And it's not just us. If you're getting an investment from an investment firm, you're racing against a clock. The uniqueness of your solution, there's a window on it. And the best example that I always like to give is that when there is an award show, and someone has a dress or something that's there. And you know, very quickly, someone copies it. So when you start to get to that middle stage of growth and you're just like, yes, that's when people start to copy you. That's when consolidation starts to happen. So speed is really critical through all of the stages of scale up, but it's a different kind of speed. And I think that in general is not something that most of the European companies that I've worked with appreciate. 
you've seen quite a few SaaS companies over your career, right? You've worked with some, you uh, worked in some, you've worked, I don't know, you've observed. I've advised, I'm on board. I know, yeah, yes. it's, it's crazy. <laughs> like if you could provide an example of which companies you think are gold standards that are worth imitating. When I read this potential question as a as a starter for this, I smiled because there isn't any that I would say are the gold standard. Now I specialize in SaaS and all of us can say anyone that went public or had this massive return, we can all look at it and say they did well and you should copy them. But the example that I will give you is, I don't know how many of you out there have siblings. I am one of six. And I can tell you that my memories of my family are very different than my siblings because I experienced something at different ages. So anyone who has a sibling is you have very different memories of your parents. Your parents might have evolved. The time might have evolved. And so while you have this unique bond, each one of you have a very different experience in the life cycle of your family. And so what made a SaaS company good two years ago does not make a SaaS company good today. What makes SaaS companies good during scale is the uniqueness of taking a business process and something that wasn't done and putting them together. So I would say, don't copy any of them. Copy pieces and put them together to work for you because what makes you successful in SaaS during scale up is the uniqueness at speed. That's a great advice and a great way of answering my question. Shelby, thanks very much for, the, for being on the podcast. Thank you.